Hello and welcome back to another episode of Researcher Radio, your weekly podcast that looks at the research that's making waves in the scientific and academic community and the people behind it. So again, like last week, before I introduced uh, the guest this week, I'd like everybody to subscribe or leave a review wherever you may be listening. And again, if you've got any feedback for the show, then please drop me an email at joseph.fenton at research-app.com. Also, I'd like to take a moment and talk to you about a special up-and-coming edition of Research at Radio, which we will air just after the new year. In this episode, we would love to hear requests and questions for the members of the researcher team. So if you've got any questions that you would like to ask us about the app or even about the podcast show, then again, just drop me an email. Okay, so let me introduce the guest for this week's show. Today... Our guest is Dr. Gabriele Gutz from the University of Zurich. Gabriele is the author of Multiplexed Protein Maps Link Subcellular Organization to Cellular States. Today, we'll be finding out a bit more about that paper and Gabriele as well. Okay, so before we get into your paper, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your academic career so far? So, I've been, um, I've done my PhD at the University of Zurich, as you introduced me. Uh, in your introduction, sorry, uh, in the lab of Lucas Parkman, uh, where I was mainly focused on uh, combining uh, immunofluorescence approaches together with computer vision and machine learning algorithms to, um, in the context of systems biology and quantitative cell biology. I uh, happened to do my master's also in that lab. Um, and just stayed on, uh, since it was a combination or the University of Zurich calls it a fast track PhD, uh, where I'm being, um, selected during my studies, which I also ended up doing at the University of Zurich. Uh, I was put into Lucas's lab where I did my master's and my PhD. So that's, uh, not a very exciting, um, <laughs> I've remained in, in the, the realm of the University of Zurich. Okay. So as, um, as ridiculous as, this may sound. How long does a fast track program go on for? Because obviously you're the, you're the first person I've interviewed for this particular show that has done the fast track program. So it was supposed to allow you to combine your master's work together with your uh, PhD work. So ideally you'd be able to finish within three to five, three to four years uh, starting from your master's. Um, what you will see is that I haven't done so because my master's was on a very different topic. So uh, it was very nice because it gave me the opportunity to learn all what is there to learn in, in Lucas's lab prior to restarting really it. Um, but in general, the idea would be to speed it up, as the name says. In my case, um, I ended up doing a four and a half year long PhD. Okay, and for those that may not be familiar with your area of expertise, and for those that may not have read your paper, and I'm not going to uh, repeat it because that was quite a mouthful, could you give us a brief overview at all? Well, so the, what we've done in, in, in that paper was um, develop a, a new immunofluorescence um, protocol uh, to do multiplex immunofluorescence, and we called it 4I, which stands for iterative indirect immunofluorescence imaging and um, the idea for that protocol was that whilst there are multiplexing protocols around, uh, some are antibody based, some are not, 
Um, there was no protocol which was really able to use off-the-shelf antibodies um, to do multiplexing uh, whilst preserving the, the biological samples, in our case cells, uh, to the degree we needed uh, to be confident that biological information we'd be extracting from those samples was, was really true also in the, high le- uh, in the higher levels of multiplexing. So I ended up developing that protocol and um, perhaps not uh, I was very naive when I set out to do this, pro- uh, to do this project. I uh, hadn't thought about how to analyze those images because what you end up is uh, you have a lot of multiplexed images for the same cells, in our case, 40 channels, and you have that for thousands of cells for dozens of conditions. Uh, so we needed a good quantitative way to, to measure protein abundance and localization in all these, uh, in all these cells. And so I came up with an algorithm called multiplex protein maps, uh, which is basically an abstract quantification of the multiplex pixel intensities found in cells and, uh, their quantification. <laughs> this is a, it's a very high level description of the paper. In essence, now with with 4i you can do uh multiplexing with off-the-shelf antibodies uh up to 40 cycles and with multiplex protein maps you can quantify those uh those intensities um in an unsupervised manner okay to give a, a little bit of a background to our listeners i'm just curious to know how important is this general approach of multiplex protein assays in biomedicine Okay, so I think if you if you follow the field, it's it's clear that um, RNA sequencing has revolutionized probably the way how how we look at biological samples and cell biology, but also uh, um, cell development and and um, diseases because they give us a, a very high dimensional readout of what is happening in these systems. Um, Unfortunately, there was not a lot of technologies able to do this for proteins. There are some multiplexing technology, for instance, Cytoff, and they too have revolutionized how people, for instance, uh, work in the field of immunology. So I believe that having multiplex protein readouts, as it was for multiplex RNA readouts, will, um, in essence, fundamentally probably changes the way how people will look at um at biological questions or biomedical questions because it allows you to study most um, partners which are engaged in a biological process at the same time, which you could, wouldn't be able to do before. Okay, so as you mentioned in your introduction, there's this new type technique for I, and um, it's quite a mouthful, so please um, do correct me if I pronounce it wrong but it's the iterative indirect immunofluorescent imaging. Um, But it seems incredibly useful, especially as it uses off-the-shelf antibodies. So what was a key consideration in your approach that this method is used as widely as possible? I think what what we were striving for was to have a, a protocol which was as close as possible to the standard immunofluorescence protocol so that people wouldn't have to change the way how they used to have how they do their wet lab work so it was very it was clear from the beginning that we wanted to have those steps included and we also didn't want to have uh, people 
having to, for instance, label primary antibodies or only being restricted to primary label antibodies. So it was uh, the next consideration was to make sure that this protocol would work in conjunction with unlabeled primary antibody. So I think this is more or less what we always kept in mind when we were designing the protocol. Keep it as close as possible to the normal immunofluorescence protocol. You've used obviously some very clever but traditional biology approaches in your work alongside computer visions and systems biology. So do you feel that utilising AI and these computer systems alongside traditional techniques will lead to insights and breakthroughs which would previously have been very difficult? Perhaps let me split perhaps this question in, in, in two parts. In general, I think computational approaches have changed uh, the way how biology is done. Uh, there's no there's no doubt about it since the onset of systems biology. So um, this revolution has been ongoing since since many many years. It's just a bit less prominent. It's not as prominent as, for instance, now uh, artificial intelligence is. But most systems biologists or quantitative cell biologists already now use machine learning in their work. Now, specifically to my project, I think um, developing the the multiplex protein map algorithm was crucial because there would have been no way for for our sort of group of researchers to make sense out of that rich data set. Um, without computer vision approach and machine learning uh, to guide us. As perhaps, as I mentioned before, it would have been an impossible task to, to you know, to measure how a protein A co-localizes to protein B in relation to protein C in cells in the cell cycle compared in three different drug conditions. It's, it's just not uh, something your brain can do. So for this, it was crucial to have machine learning approaches ongoing. Okay, so before I move on to the impacts generally as a piece, I wanted to talk about one small impact, and that is about the new amount of information that can be generated. And surely this will lead to a a lot more insight for researchers across the world working in different areas. So do you envisage this being applied in a real-life clinical setting? or in an academic and research setting? Yeah, well, huh. uh, that's a good question. Obviously, I'm coming from, from the academic setting, and there uh, it's probably easier for me to answer. I think we, we have lots of requests and lots of uh, people interested in the protocol to answer questions they were, as you said, not able to answer before, be it in, in the field of cell signaling and development, in in the field of neurosciences. So I think it is more tangible there. Um, on, on the part of the, of, on the clinical side, I think, um, what, what I can say is that there is, there is ongoing efforts, um, where 4i is actively used in clinical trials already to quantify, uh, several protein levels in patient samples. Um, that is ongoing. I hope that we will manage to push this even more and move it even from just the clinical trial aspect into uh, almost the clinical routine work to see whether we can use uh, 4i and, and uh, the multiplex protein map to quantify, for instance, uh, tissue sections in pathology. 
or to see what uh, the drug responses of the patient samples, things like this. Okay, so please do speculate with uh, with this one, but I'm just curious to know how far in the future do you think that this system will become a reality in the clinical trials process? That is, uh, uh, well, I would hope as fast as possible, obviously. I, I think it, it does work and would add a lot of value. Um, talking with um, clinicians, I see both a lot of excitement and um, an understandable um, perhaps hesitance to take take up these protocols too easily because um, they are they are as they they're interacting with patients so at the end they have to make the decisions. So probably I hope that in in five years I might get back to you and say yes this is working or perhaps even fast let's say in four years that uh, this is working we're using four eye or multiplex protein maps to diagnose disease X or predict disease outcome Y. Okay, just just make sure that you um that you email me after you've done that. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, um, so impacts not of the piece, but impacts on you. Has there been a particular person that has really impacted this piece at all? So you know, achieving multiplex thing for aminoforescence has been a goal in the field for quite a while, um, and. Me growing up in a in an imaging lab, basically academically, um, uh, this is something everybody always wanted. And so, in, in this field, there is um, there's perhaps two people which have which is you know which you whenever you see a paper of them, you're just going to read it because you know their work is inspiring and it's interesting. And that might perhaps not come as a surprise, but it was um, it's Eric Betzig. And uh, Jennifer Lippincott-Schwartz, uh, they're both now at Genilia. Um, Jennifer Lippincott-Schwartz developed a six-plex live imaging um, setup, which I believe is probably technology-wise much more advanced than uh, than what we have achieved with 4i. And um, as you well know, Eric Betzig has received a Nobel Prize for developing uh, super-resolution microscopy, and he's now applying similar principles in live imaging. So perhaps these two people are, are, are people you might, you know, strive to and, and, uh, which impact your work. Not directly, but just by the fact that they're doing research at such a high level. So one of the largest issues across academia is, um, is funding. So what was the funding process for this particular paper like? So perhaps I have to say I was lucky enough that uh, the funding was organised by my PI back then for this project. Um, so I hadn't, I hadn't to, uh, I hadn't to write the grant. I know that it was part of a um, systems biology um, effort by the Swiss government uh, to push basically um, systems biology technologies in Switzerland. So I think this worked quite nicely. And people, I think, were happy that we managed to achieve this with the funding. Um, in general, I think for the funding in, in, you know, I'm, I'm at a very early stage of an academic career. I've just applied for two grants for my own research. They, um, which were parts of the University of Zurich and the Swiss government. And there we were lucky enough that people 
still very, very much support um, basic research projects and basic research questions, um, which is which is wonderful, I believe, because it's nice that scientists, at least here, don't have to morph their scientific interest too much towards a medical need or a medical question, which I think is is unique. And that is very cool. This is how I um, I've experienced the academic funding um, in Switzerland so far. Okay, so if we move along the timeline of this piece, and you told us how you've collected the funding for the paper, and now what was the experience or journey of publishing this piece like? I have to say it was um, it was pleasurable and not so pleasurable <laughs> at the same time. I'm, I think I'm going to elaborate on this. So in general, I think the experience we had with the journal was was very good. Where the journal we submitted the work to it was it was very professional. I thought it was very fair and it was handled very efficiently. I think that was great, um, which is um, which is nice. I have to say. I think what was a what was a the harder bit of the whole pub, uh, of the whole publishing was uh, at least in, in in our lab you you work for a very long time on your manuscript before you will submit it to a journal. So having those months where you work on on the really fine details of um, of the paper were were gruesome. I have to say, uh, kudos to my to my lab members. They were harsh on me. Uh, almost harsher than the reviews were, but that uh, paid out in this case. Okay, I guess it's it's different each time. So, have you published other pieces of work? And uh, if so, how has the experiences of publishing differed from those papers to this particular piece? Yeah, so I published uh, another piece in 2015, uh, which was... Similarly, also a method-focused paper, um, and there the review process was a bit was a bit more challenging, I think, because we were asked to do more um, experimental work, and we also decided ourselves to pack like an extra an extra bit of work into the revision just to to convince both reviewers and the editors that 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 what we were doing was serious and that we were eager to to do as good as we could. So I think that was um, experimentally almost on the harder side of my last paper. Um, but in general, I have to say I had quite pleasurable experience publishing. <laughs> I know this is rare. But I think I, I count myself very lucky on that. Um, I guess, I guess um, that, you know, each paper and with more experience of publishing and getting used to the whole process of it, you know, things will will ultimately change and, and, and differ. So talking about changes or differing, I'm just wondering how you usually spend your week academically. Yeah, well, um, what I end up doing is that uh, I try to plan my week the week before, <laughs> Uh, just because there is, we have, um, or even a bit earlier, just because we have limited time of our equipment because it's very busy. Uh, an experiment, especially a multiplexing experiment, takes a lot of time. So you can usually, I end up 
planning my week uh, a week or two weeks before. Um, I try to have, um, you know, you, you have to balance your your, your time you spend in front of the computer, um, programming and coding uh, with the one you spend in the lab doing the experiment. Um, often they they don't go well together just because you need focus for both uh, both aspects and it's hard to jump back and forth. Um, I also try to set aside a set time um, for reading literature and following up on literatures. And there is obviously the odd meeting sprinkled through the week. Okay, okay. so uh, keeping up with the literature, and you know, there's this uh, the beautiful analogy of drowning in a in a sea of literature. How much time do you dedicate to this? Yes. So I think when I when when I don't have you know a very focused phase, be it because of experiments or because we're writing a paper, I used to try to put aside either a whole morning or two half mornings a week. Um. To follow up on research of others, um, often it it ends up being a Thursday morning or a Friday morning, just because uh, lots of the papers I follow or a lot of the journals I follow publish in these days, be it on a monthly or a weekly basis. So it's either on Thursday morning or Friday morning or those half mornings where I where I would try to 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 read interesting papers. Okay, so you talk about planning your week maybe a week or two weeks in advance and this is kind of going to lead on to the next question and it's all about productivity and obviously productivity is uh, vital to anybody in any career but have you got any tips or tricks that you've used to increase your own academic output so that's uh, that's <laughs> I remember um, that changed a lot during the course of my PhD, and perhaps I should elaborate on this. So when I, I remember when I started in my PhD, um, there was nothing but my PhD. So basically, you'd start your day at eight thirty or nine, and you knew that basically, if you had no other real commitments, you'd be happy to spend um, your day until ten o'clock, eleven o'clock, or twelve o'clock in the lab to do this. So you know that your day was very long, and thus you. You were a bit more relaxed and nonchalant on how you were investing your time. So I think what has changed a lot, I can see in the course of my, of, of my PhD is that I now set myself very strict working hours. So I say I want to come into the lab at X and I want to leave the lab at, at Y time. And, um, so I make sure that I are as productive as possible in that time. And I think that's made a big difference for me at least just. Being aware that you only want to invest a limited time uh, of your day into this. Obviously, if it if it needs to be, you'll end up. You know, if there if the project requires it, you will work longer hours. But coming into the lab with a set of hours and tasks you want to try to achieve that day has helped a lot. <laughs> I see this this changing for a lot of PhDs that that there is this shift and that actually where life gets easier if you realize that you don't want to spend. Um, hours and hours in your lab and rather focus and try to do as much as you can those hours. I can imagine. Okay, so in your wider field, what topics are are really hot right now? What's uh, interesting you the most, shall we say? I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm moving the fields a bit. I, think, I mean, perhaps 
it's not that I, I'm not dedicated to one sole biological questions. It's not how, how my research has been structured. I think what I see a lot of people trying is to, to use multiplex readouts more and more and more for clinical questions, obviously. And that's, uh, and I think there is great interest from society to, 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 basically advertise um, development in that field. So I think that's that's a hot one. Definitely, I see from on the more biological side, I see that there is a lot of uh, of interest in um, liquid unmixing, so phase separation. So how do proteins um, not mix with each other based on uh, posturization modification? I see... A lot of interesting things go uh, happening there, especially you know, explaining biological processes now from this angle uh, where they make much more sense. So I think these are the two fields I I follow also the most. So <laughs> it's 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 uh, it would be hard for me to say anything else. Um, what about you um, you personally? What are you working on right now? So I've just. Uh, since the paper is out, I've been, um, I've managed to secure some funding to finance myself and, uh, a small, very small team, uh, to try to translate, um, 4i and, uh, the multiplex protein maps into more, um, clinically applied, um, questions, uh, to basically then ideally spin these ideas out, um, into a startup. So this is what we're doing at the moment. We're trying to translate uh, protein maps onto the tissues and see how we can use multiplexing to uh, assess a patient's response to drugs um, and identify potential therapies for specific patients. Okay, and so for my last question, and our listeners will know this question all too well by now, and that is... What would be your one piece of advice for anybody that's just about to undertake a PhD? So I think what is really important when you when you choose your PhD lab is that you get along very well with your future lab mates. I know people will will be tempted to choose their lab probably because of the professor which is heading the lab, but you spend most of your time, you will receive most of your feedback and you will interact. Or spend most yeah spend most of the time with the lab with your future lab mates. So it's important that you have a very good chemistry with these people. They almost become family for part of your project because you will be you spend so much time with them. You'll rely so much on their feedback. Um, and very important, you also listen to your potential future lab mates. Ask them questions. How the lab is what is expected of them because because they've seen it all. And uh, finally, be very honest. So if if, uh, if you're interviewing a lab where people say, look, you're expected to work this and this many hours and uh, you're not willing to do this, um, my piece of advice perhaps is not to join that lab because it's going to be it's going to be a lot of pressure for you um, to, to do this. And um, one rarely changes. And I think probably... Starting a PhD with the assumption that that you will that one will be different than the others and things will be different for oneself is perhaps a bit naive and dangerous. Well, thank you very much for that one piece of advice. And um, sadly, that's all we've got time for today. 
So today we've been joined by Dr. Gabriele Gutz from the University of Zurich. Gabriele, thank you so much for joining us and coming on today. Thank you very much. Bye. And thank you for listening, everyone. Okay, and before I go, I'd just like to remind you again about our special edition of Researcher Radio, which will come out in the new year. So again, if you've got any questions about the show or about the Researcher app in general, then forward me your questions. And again, you could be anonymous if you like. So yeah, I look forward to reading them. Until next time. You've been listening to The Researcher Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. You can also follow us online at www.researcher-app.com. Or, alternatively, you can drop me an email at joseph.fenton at researcherapp.com. Researcher is free to use on iOS, Android, or on your web browser. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to leave us a review.